For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're talking about three aspects of biblical love. And the greater context here is this is a, a community of Jewish background people who have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're being persecuted. And for them, what that means is, is that they're being tempted to go back to traditional Judaism. For them, you know, like abandoning the faith wouldn't be just, you know, becoming an agnostic or an atheist or something. Abandoning the faith would be going back to the traditions of the way that they were raised. And so they are experiencing a testing of their faith through these trials of being rejected, of having their property seized, of being thrown in jail. And the author is working through trying to help guide them through that testing, primarily by reminding them of the truth of who Jesus is and connecting the truth of who Jesus is through the teachings of the Old Testament so that they would understand as Jewish background people that Jesus is not a new thing, but he is the fulfillment of what God has been doing through the, Jesus, through the Jewish people the entire time. They're answering that question, is Christianity really the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? Is Christianity, is Jesus that God's plan? And he makes a very persuasive argument that that is the case. And so we're here in the last chapter, and the question we start wrestling with is, okay, how's they going to wrap this up? And one of the things you've noticed, hopefully, through this study is, whenever I refer to the author, I refer to them as the author, because I don't know who the author is. There's a lot of debate on that topic. And when we get to chapter 13, I think it's the best opportunity there is to discuss a little bit the issue of authorship in the book of Hebrews. I'll explain it why. So tradition holds that the book of Hebrews is written by Paul the Apostle. And when I say tradition, I don't mean like my grandma told me it was Paul. I mean like we have sources that go back to like 95 AD, which would have been like 40 years after the book of Hebrews was written that say it was Paul. So it's a strong tradition with a lot of historical background. But the author of the book of Hebrews never names themselves. Usually when Paul writes a letter, he starts it out, how? I, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, to you, those who reside in Philippi, right? But he, this doesn't start that way. And at no point is the author ever named in the book, which opens up, you know, a lot of questions, especially with skeptics and with scholars who, you know, they kind of make a name for themselves by coming up with novel, new ideas and approaches to understanding ancient things. It doesn't mean they're bad or good. It just means that's how you set yourself apart is you're the first one to claim to figure something out. So this is a hot spot for a lot of scholars to be like, okay, we think Paul didn't write Hebrews, and then we have a theory about who did write Hebrews. Now, in addition to not being named, there is, we are told by Greek scholars, I am not a Greek scholar, that the Greek is very different. The vocabulary that's used, the syntax that's used, the Greek has a very different feel than other writings that we know that are and claim to be from Paul. Frankly, what they say is Hebrews is too eloquent to be Paul. It just fits and it has more complex words and it flows so much better. Paul kind of bounces around a lot in rabbit trails and this is like pretty eloquent Greek and therefore it can't be Paul. That's the argument that goes along with the fact that he's not named. And so, you know, those are things that are worth considering. Who wrote this book? Is it, does it matter? Why is it important? And like I said, different people come up with different theories. The problem is we're 2,000 years out, and, you know, the evidence for who else would have written it is very small. 
But, you know, a leading candidate is Apollos, who was a first century Christian from a Jewish background. And we're told in the book of Acts that Apollos says, now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. Jewish background, Greek city, Alexandria was where the library of Alexandria was. It was like the center of scholarship in the world at that time. We're told he's eloquent. And so, you know, a scholar might be like, well, if, if it wasn't Paul, then whom? They would read this and be like, ding, 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 ding. Eloquent Greek, knows the scriptures, Jewish background. Hebrews was written by Apollos. And it sounds good and it makes sense and it's possible. Not saying Apollos didn't write it. Don't know. But that's like all the evidence there is that Apollos wrote Hebrews. And then there are others more recently who have been saying, I think maybe it was Priscilla. And the idea there is very lovely and very nice. They're like a major book of the New Testament written by a woman. Wouldn't that be great? And yes, that would be great. But that's not a, like a good reason to just grab the name of like a prominent woman in the New Testament and be like, she wrote Hebrews. The evidence there would be Acts 18.26. says that talking about Apollos, he began to speak out bodily, boldly in the synagogue. And then Priscilla and Aquila, her husband, heard Apollos. And they took him aside and explained to him the way to God more accurately. And they're like, if, if Apollos was an eloquent man of Greek and Priscilla can teach him, she wrote the book of Hebrews. And you're like, I don't know. I just, I, you know, I don't know. You know, it's great that, you know, there's this noticing of the language being different, of, you know, the, the fact that the author's name's not mentioned. But is it really like that we can make a strong argument? The question is, okay, Paul... Apollos, Priscilla, what does the evidence support? What is the greatest weight of evidence? Now, another candidate that's often put forward is Luke, the guy who wrote Luke and the book of Acts. And one of the reasons he's put forward so prominently is that you can do an analysis of the vocabulary, the style, the language, and you can look at Luke, Acts, and you can look at Hebrews, and they match up pretty well. It actually seems like the, the flow and the language of Luke-Acts fits Hebrews better than a lot of the Pauline epistles do, and better than any other New Testament author that we have. So at least that's at least like a, a more evidence-based, but again, it's subjective. You're saying, you know, this person's style matches this, so therefore they wrote the book. It gets a little complicated. The, but the vocabulary and style is similar to Luke and Acts as it is in Hebrews. It just doesn't seem like Paul is really kind of one of the, It doesn't seem like Paul. It doesn't sound like Paul. And when you look at the Greek, it doesn't look like Paul. And it isn't named as being by Paul. And I remember in seminary, um, I took a class on the book of Hebrews. One of the coolest classes I took. And the professor was really knowledgeable. He had gotten his PhD and he had done his dissertation to get his doctorate on the question of who authored Hebrews. And it was like, okay, this guy has dedicated his life to answering that question. What do you got? And he was like, Paul did not write Hebrews. And I was like, oh, okay, who did? No one knows. <laughs> and it's like, okay. And we, we, I really like was trying to be, just follow along. And we went through the book. And it was like, I, I do see, you know, he would point out like, here's the way that Paul talks about this issue. Here's the way that the author of Hebrews talks about this issue. Their theology, their beliefs align. But the way that they describe it is different. And so he would point those things out along the way, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm really starting to believe Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews. And that's okay, but like, I don't like not knowing who wrote the book of Hebrews. And then we got to chapter 13, and Paul just showed up. 
Like when you're reading the book of Hebrews and you're like, I don't know who wrote this. Then you get to chapter 13. You really got to be like, wait a second. This looks like Paul. Why? Because at the end of every one of his letters, what does Paul do? He gets a shotgun of imperatives, like I'm running out of papyri and I still have so much to say, you know, love one another, serve one another, be good, you know, don't do anything evil. And he just goes, boom, 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 boom. Like, it's like there's an argument that's flowing all along. He's got a scalpel and he's dissecting a thing. And then he gets to the end and he holds a shotgun up to your face and he blasts you with all the thoughts he doesn't have time to cover. That's Paul. That is also Hebrews chapter 13. Allow me to show you. Let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by it some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with all that you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you and who derived the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Do you feel like you just got blasted in the face by a shotgun of imperatives? I do. And it looks exactly like almost the end of every letter that Paul ever wrote. Then you get to the very end and you get, but I urge you brethren, Bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take note that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom if he comes to you soon, I will see you. Timothy is Paul's disciple who co-wrote several of his epistles with him. He is linked more with Paul than anyone else in the entire New Testament. And he's saying, Timothy's going to come, and if he comes, of course, I'll come too. And by the way, we're writing to you from Italy, where we know Paul spent a great deal of time on house arrest writing a lot of the New Testament. Weigh the evidence. Apollos, Luke, Acts, Priscilla, Paul. But if it was Paul, why wouldn't he sign it? Paul. Well, we have one other source that gets into that. Why is the language so different? That's another important question. One answer is he could have been using a different amanuensis. That's just a fancy word for meeting secretary, someone who's writing down and maybe even translating what he was writing. So maybe the person who was writing it down for him had much better Greek than the people who usually did this work. And so the Greek is better. That's possible. That would make sense. Or, here's what I think. It says, it could have been that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews in Hebrew, in his native tongue. And when you say that the Greek of Paul was not very good, well, it was his second language. It wasn't his native tongue. And you're, com- you're communicating very complex philosophical and theological ideas in a non-native tongue, and doing it quite well if it's your second language. And so, you know, the idea that he wrote the book of Hebrews to the Hebrew people in Hebrew, and that he would be way more eloquent in Hebrew than he would be in Greek, makes a lot of sense. And then they get translated into, into Greek, and it was way more eloquent than when he's dictating to someone in Greek. And we have extra, histor- extra biblical historical corroboration for that idea. Eusebius. Eusebius was a theologian writing around 200 AD. Now, what Eusebius did in this case that was important was he quoted a guy named Clement. Clement was writing around 98 AD. So what Clement wrote, we don't have a copy of that. We, can't, we don't have, that hasn't been found by archaeology. But Eusebius, we know who he is, is quoting Clement, and we know who Clement is, and we know when Clement lived. So when he says that he, he had access to some of Clement's writing, 
And he was writing about 40 years after the book of Hebrews was written. Check out what Clement says, according to Eusebius. Clement says that the epistle to the Hebrew is Paul's and was written to the Hebrews in the Hebrew language, but that Luke, having carefully translated it, gave it to the Greeks. And hence the same coloring and the expression is discoverable in the epistle, meaning Luke, and the Acts, and that the name Paul, an apostle, was very properly not prefixed, for Paul knew, writing to the Hebrews, that they were prejudiced against him and suspected him. He, with great wisdom, did not repel them in the beginning by putting down his own name. Well, that just makes a heck of a lot of sense to me. You know, we have the scholars saying, it looks like maybe Luke, because it's the language of Luke Acts, right? And then we have them saying, you know, it's more eloquent, and it's more, it, it, it just seems way more eloquent than Paul, and that if Paul in his heart wanted to reach his own people, that he thought, if I start this out to the Jewish people, I, Paul, who used to be Saul, and then betrayed you, might not get him a good hearing. I, I really believe this is Paul. And I think that the evidence supports that far better than any other cases. But just so you know, I'm in the minority. In modern scholars, I wouldn't call myself a scholar. I uh, disagree with most modern scholars because of the, and that's just the way it is. When I read chapter 13, I can get where they're coming from. My professor was a brilliant man. He spent more time studying Hebrews uh, than I ever will in my entire life. And I believed him, and I was convinced. And then I got to chapter 13, and it was just like, this is Paul. And I brought it up in class, raised my hand, and he was like, yeah. And I was like, listen, you've had me all quarter. But didn't Paul just show up? And he was like, yeah. But there's 12 chapters that clearly are not Paul. How do you explain that? And I was like, Eusebius? And he was like, that's a valid argument. That's not what I believe, but that's properly understood. So, I really think Hebrews was written by Paul, and that's why. Back to the question, how is the author going to wrap this up? And he does it very appropriately. Hebrews 13.1 let the love of the brethren continue. What he's saying is, is don't let your circumstances, the suffering that you're undergoing, hinder your ability to love one another. It's very difficult when you're going through hard times to keep the focus outward. It tends to be like, well, I'm having a hard time. This is difficult for me. What am I going to do? And we start thinking about our own problems and focusing on ourselves. And I can't give and serve anyone else when I have so many problems in my life. But the author wisely is reminding them, as you figure out how to persevere through this suffering, don't forget to love. Love is everything according to the Bible. It is the central theme. It is the highest virtue. It is the most important thing. If you were to sum up who God is in one word and on one word only, and the Bible does this, that word is love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. That's what he is about. That's who he is. According to Jesus, we were made for love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's what all the Bible, he sums up the entire Bible with love God and love your neighbor. If you do those two things, you're living God's way. Jesus said it's our love for one another that would make us distinct. That would, he said, you will be known as Christians, as my followers, by your love for one another. And 1 Cor 13 says, love is the most important thing. These three things, faith, hope, and love, but the, the greatest of them is love. And so love is the way to move forward. 
Love is what a Christian is supposed to be in every circumstance, especially when we ourselves suffer. He's saying as you are suffering, don't lose your love for others because then if that's the case, we are truly lost. When we lose that, we lose ourselves. And I think there's three aspects of biblical love that the author's talking about here. Hebrews 13, 2, he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. I know this looks like this shotgun of imperatives, but you know, part of what you do when you, when you sit down and you study this stuff is you look for a thread that connects these ideas. What's in the author's mind? And I think it's love. And I think he's talking about three different types of love. And the first one here is the love for those outside the community. The love of strangers is the love for the people that you don't know. Open up your life as you suffer. Continue to love the people that you meet, the people that you don't know. Open up your house. Open up what you have. Be generous and invite other people into your life. Now, that's very difficult to do under any circumstances because people are very messy. And as you get to know people more and more, you get to understand how messy they are. And you are very messy, so to have their mess mingling with your mess seems very unstrategic. (laughs) Especially when you have no obligation to that person. They're a stranger. Like maybe you let your kids mingle with your mess or like your best friend growing up, but strangers bringing them into your life and when you yourself are already suffering, he says that is what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Don't lose yourself in the midst of your suffering, but continue to let the power and the truth of who Jesus is shine through you, even through hard times. Continue to invite other people into your life. Remain focused on what matters. And as you do that, demonstrate a lifestyle. You know, I think part of what we get when we get caught up in this idea of, do I really want to let other people's mess in my life? Part of it is, is we think about, well, you know, at different stages of life, when our kids are little, we think, well, you know, this is very messy and it's very complicated, and it takes a lot of my time and my energy just to have our family together. I don't really have time to bring other people into this, and I don't want to bring in chaos, and I want to protect my kids from what's out there. And, you know, those are rational thoughts and things that need to be considered. The other thing, though, should be the fear of what it is that you're teaching your children. Are you teaching your children to be generous Are you teaching them to be kind? Are you teaching them to give to others? Are you teaching them to welcome people into their lives? And are you demonstrating for them the power of God's love by inviting people into your mess and exposing your kids to other people's messes? Yes, we have to protect our children, but we have to be fearful of, we can't, we have to be fearful of teaching them to be selfish in the name of protecting them. One of the things we need to protect them from is the idea that, that, that we have to block out the world in order to protect what we have. That's one of the worst possible things that could happen to your kids is for them to believe that the way to live is to protect yourself. Yet, of course, we want our children to be able to protect themselves. And so that's what we have is a glorious opportunity to, in a controlled environment, open up our lives, open up our family, and have the mess be a part of the life that we live for Christ and for our kids to be a part of that as well, even when the timing is bad. Or you might even say, especially when the timing is bad, this is important. Inviting people in. There was an opportunity here, I think, to talk a little bit about, you know, what we've been doing here at this meeting, too. You know, we've spent a lot of time and a lot of effort, a lot of energy and a lot of money trying to change up the environment and create this sort of 
great atmosphere where we built the play place and we updated things outside and we've been changing the food and upgrading the quality and, you know, smoker and free waffles and, you know, the cameras to watch the kids when they play. Like, why are we doing all of that? Like, what's the point behind all that? And I got to be honest with you, it's not for you. We have a basic assumption that you as a believer in Jesus Christ are coming here to hear the Word of God. And as long as we do a good job of presenting the Word of God, we are meeting your needs. We're doing that for your friends that don't know God, who are not going to come here to hear a Bible teaching. But they might come here for a cheap brisket, for some free childcare, and the opportunity to have an adult meaningful conversation for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. And so, you know, all of that stuff is great, and we, we hope that you're enjoying it, but we would be remiss if we were saying, you know, the point of this is to make our community happier. Well, you know, there's lots of ways to do that without going through all of those things. I hope what you're doing each week is you're coming here and you're thinking, I can't believe so-and-so who doesn't know God has never seen this. They would love this. They have all these presuppositions that are negative about what church means on Sunday morning, and I could bring them here, and we could have time to talk and engage and eat good food and be around cool people. But that's, that's the point behind making those kinds of changes, and that we're earnest about that. Like We're not just coming here on Sunday morning and thinking, oh, yeah, I, thought I meant to invite this person, but that we're praying for the people in our lives throughout the week. And we're inviting them and we're recognizing that what we're building here is something designed to share and to help break down the barriers and the walls that people have for understanding the Bible. That's the point behind all of that stuff is to create those opportunities for loving those outside the church. This is the breath of experiencing God's love. This idea that you take in God's love. You experience it. You inhale it. You know and breathe and take it in and it changes your life. And so many people have that experience. They come around and they see Christians and they experience hospitality and love and people talk to them and they engage with them and they're like, wow, this is really amazing. But then you have to have the other side of that experience, which is not only breathing in and receiving the love of God, but exhaling and expressing the love of God, because that is the greater of the two experiences. It is fantastic to be loved and to be loved by God and loved by others. The only thing better than that is to be used by God to love somebody else who doesn't know love. And the fullness of who we are and what we're supposed to be and what we're doing here is about both of those things. Think about what does it happen? What does it mean if all you do is inhale? You explode. You die, right? But it's the, it's the intake and the output together that is life and that is the spiritual life. I get desperately concerned when people come out for a year or more and they never learn how to serve. They just continually show up with, what do you got for me today? What's next for me? And you say, that's, that's, that's part of it, yes. Step one. But what are you gonna do to serve and love someone else today? That is the fullness And that's why the author is saying to them as they suffer, don't forget to exhale. Don't forget to experience what it is like to be used by God as God's love moves you into the lives of other people. And if we stop doing that, we die. We have our community breaks down. We go inward as a church. Our love grows cold. We start looking at each other with suspicion. We become fake, and there is no joy here. There is no relationship here. There's just fake hypocrisy coming together to get our needs met without any desire or interest in serving or helping anyone else.
It's rudimentary to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The next thing he says is, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, as those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are in the body. And it seems like that's a wild jump, but uh, I don't know that it is. Because, you know, visiting people in prison is good. And there are amazing prison ministries that, that go into prisons and share the word of God and love people. That's the outside world. That's Christians going outside of the church to love people. But for them, that's not what this was. That's not what he's talking about in this specific case. The context is the prisoners are their fellow Christians that are a part of their community. In the context, the prisoners are not random strangers, but it's the people who are being thrown in prison because they're Christians. Hebrews 10, 34, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. When he's saying, remember the prisoners, he's talking about remember your brothers and sisters in Christ who are in jail because of their faith. And he is not telling them to visit them. One, I don't know how much visiting was going on in Roman prisons. It wasn't like today where, you know, there's a visiting section in a room. You know, it was a dungeon and people were, you know, uh, on gulag, you know, work trains. There wasn't, you know, a lot of having your mom and dad come in to see you in the room where you talk. It was a Roman prison. And think about how that would work. So your friend is in prison because they're a Christian. Let's say you could visit. You go and you say, yeah, I'm here to see Bill. And they're like, Bill's here because he's a Christian. And you're like, yeah, I know. And you're like, how do you know Bill? Ooh. What do you do? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when he says, remember the prisoners. He says, remember them as though you are in prison with them. Remembering in this case is like pray for them and take care of their families. Don't let the fact that they're not there and they can't provide and their property was seized and now their spouse and their children are homeless. Remember those people have needs. Remember and step up because he says, since you yourselves also are in the body, we are one together with these people, and they have lost their property. They've been thrown in jail. Let's not pretend like they cease to exist, but let's pray for them, and let's meet the needs of their families that they can't meet themselves. We are identified as believers together as a body, and Jesus regularly identified himself with believers. What he's talking about is, first he was talking about loving those outside the church, now he's talking about loving those inside the church. Jesus taught this all the time, Matthew 25 through 40. He says, that what you do for the least of these, you also did for me. Any way that you help the poor, any way that you help someone who's suffering, you're also helping me. When he confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, who was murdering Christians, at the time his name was Saul, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had never met Jesus Christ until that point. He had been killing Jesus' followers, but Jesus says, you're persecuting me because he identified with us as we are supposed to identify with one another by sharing our joys and our suffering as the family of God. He's saying as people are being thrown into jail and their property is being seized, treat them like family and treat their families like family. We are the family of God and we need to watch out for one another. We need to help each other in our time of needs, and we need to not quit on each other, especially when times are hard. I'm sure there was a sense of if you weren't one of the ones in jail, it was time to batten down the hatches and take care of yourself and, you know, lay low. And he's saying, don't do that. Instead, invite those people into your life. Invite those brothers and sisters of Christ into your home and meet the needs of the people, of the family of God, 
go the extra mile in prioritizing your relationships with other believers. That is incredibly important, even while you're suffering. The third aspect is the next thing. He says, the marriage bed is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. You're like, how are you going to link that one? It's actually not that hard. What is he saying? Love those outside the church. Love those in the family of God. And love your spouse. It starts broad, and it gets narrower and narrower, and more important and more important. Your spouse, in a time of suffering, in a time when things were difficult, imagine the stress on the home when people's property are being seized and you know, people are being thrown out on the streets. I don't know about you, but you know, if I were in that environment, my wife and I would have tension. It would just be a stressful environment to be in where we're like, okay, what are we going to do and how are we going to do this? And are we going to agree that we need to be continuing to love those outside the church and we need to meet the needs of others and yet, you know, maybe we're out on the street ourselves? How are we going to feed and clothe our children is a major stressful question. And he says, in the midst of that, as you suffer, love your spouse. God's will is that we work through difficult circumstances and difficult relationships. And marriage can be the most difficult relationship you'll ever experience. It can also be the most wonderful. But when you have that outside pressure and tension of everything that's going on and the needs are crushing in and you're trying to do family and you're trying to do faith and you're trying to provide and you're trying to make it all work and then you're under this persecution from outside sources, what's one of the first things that's likely to fall off the table? Your marriage. And he says, don't do that. Don't make that a low priority. Fighting for relationships is what Christians are about, and that should be especially true in marriage. Our marriages should set us apart, should be inspirational to others, should you know, we live in a culture where there's basically almost zero belief in marriage anymore. People still do it, but out of like a sense of formality and like it's an old timey thing to do, not out of a sense of it has value or they understand the commitment that's involved in it. And the church has fared little better than the rest of the culture when it comes to that. The majority of marriages in our culture end in a divorce. And it's almost exactly the same statistics for people who claim to be Christians. How can we do no better in fighting for what matters, in fighting for our families and for our relationships when we have the power of God and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in each other? How can that make no difference? I'm happy to say that in our church, we know that we do way better than 50%, but it still happens. And it gets complicated because sometimes there are things where, people, where kids are in danger or spouses are in danger, and you have to protect people, and sometimes really horrible things happen, and terrible things are said, and there's abuse, and it gets complicated, but the answer is community. The answer is getting involved in each other's mess and helping each other out. Not making your marriage a low priority. You have to work at it. Even when you suffer, you have to make time for your spouse. In a couple of months, I'll have been happily married for 21 years. And I've learned some things along the way that I think are really helpful, that are really important in and, and connecting and, and making it work. And it's not that we haven't had hard times. We are both very, very stubborn people, very opinionated, very much one our way, and we run into that all the time. And yet, it's glorious. It's amazing. The greatest gift God has given me is my wife. Other than, of course, dying on the cross for my sins. He, she is the most regular reminder to me 
of the fact that my father wants to give me good things. And good marriages have to be done in the, the context of community. If I can tell you anything, I think, you know, I don't know where my marriage would be if we didn't have friends and people in our lives who are willing to weigh in and speak to us when we wronged each other who were willing to step in and help us resolve our conflicts and help us learn how to communicate with each other. I don't know how marriage works with people that are out there with no friends who ever talk about anything real. Marriage is meant to happen within the context of community. We need connections with each other. We need people who love us outside of the situation to help guide us and give us input and to pray for us. I think you have to have a date night. I think in the modern world, especially if you're into doing God's work, especially if you're in this church where you will have opportunities every night of the week to go out and serve the Lord, that you take at least one night a week and love your spouse. Carve out some hours to spend some time together. If at all possible, move heaven and earth and get a babysitter and go and be two civilized people in love at a restaurant Put your phones away, look into each other's eyes, and talk about real things. Make that investment. It is so imperative that that happen on a regular basis. Maybe some of you can do that without a regular date night. If you can, God bless you and good. In my experience, if I don't schedule it and make it happen, it gets eaten up by other things, and that is not a sacrifice that I or my wife are willing to make. It's too important. Pray together. Engage one another spiritually. Don't just get into the habit of functioning. Who's going to do what and what we're going to do here and how you're going to take up and who's picking up the kids and pray. Bring God into the relationship. Encourage one another Take the time regularly to think about the great things that you see in the other person and lift them up and have sex. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, okay, you know, why are you bringing sex into this, Ryan? But I didn't bring sex in. The author did. What does he mean when he says the marriage bed is just to be undefiled? It's saying that, you know, as we consider what marriage is and about this love for one another, that the way that we relate to each other and the way that we love one another, not just emotionally, not just spiritually, but physically as well, is, is important. Why does he say it this way? Is it like it's old timey and he doesn't want to just say sex? No, there's a lot more to it than that. What he's specifically saying is, is don't let the purity of your marriage bed become corrupted by outside forces. And there's a lot in that, keeping the marriage bed pure. He's not talking about being a virgin when you get married, because that's already passed, whether that is or not. You're married now. But it's an ongoing process of keeping the marriage bed undefiled. That as you are married, do not let your sex life with your spouse become corrupted. Do not bring anyone else into your sex life. And you're like, well, that's adultery, of course. Of course, we're not supposed to commit adultery. But it's all kinds of other things. Don't look to someone else to meet your romantic needs. Don't bring them into the marriage bed and get your needs that are supposed to be met by your spouse through someone else. That's defiling. That's, that's bringing a third party into the marriage bed. And he says, keep it pure. Pornography would obviously be a way of bringing someone else to the marriage bed, wouldn't it? You've got thoughts and other people floating around in your head when you're supposed to be engaged in one of the most physically intimate, connected, lovely, beautiful, and amazing things that two people can do in a context of marriage. And what are you thinking about? Who are you bringing with you? Leave the marriage bed pure. Of course, adultery is a part of that. But lust is a part of that too. Are you thinking about someone else? Where is your focus? Where is your sense of connection? What is happening with you and your spouse? And that is a very important part of a successful marriage. Don't resolve the sexual tension in your marriage without your spouse. 
Now, I know what you're thinking about how I worded that. You're thinking, I, it sounds like I'm talking about masturbation, and that's because I am. <laughs> I'm talking about married people resolving the tension, the sexual tension in their marriage without their spouse. Masturbation is obviously one way to do that, but there are others. And you see this, you see, we are built as man and woman to be intertwined and interconnected with one another. And one of the things that I hope that you'll see in your marriage is that there is a tension there. When you go a long time without being together, things get tense. And it's harder to give each other grace. And it's harder to to forgive. And it's harder to overlook offenses. And it's harder to be kind because you're always grinding against the, the problems that you're trying to solve together and the latest disaster that happened. And when you let that tension build up in your marriage, you begin to resent one another. It happens all the time. And people find different ways. For some people, it's lust, it's adultery, it's pornography, it's online emotional affairs. They release the tension. They don't feel that tension, so it no longer drives them to resolve the problem. If you have a problem that's creating tension in your marriage, you are not going to have good physical intimacy until that problem is resolved. And I think God designed it that way to drive us, both man and woman, to say, we need to get this thing that's separating us out of the way because we're suffering. And when you find a way to relieve that suffering, no matter what it is, without relieving that tension, then you stay alienated. A couple, you know, I've, I've done counseling with couples and, you know, they come in and one example would be, you know, a couple comes in and the guy's in his 40s, he's in great shape, you know, and he's like, uh, yeah, I run 10 miles a day. And I'm like, that's it. wow, that's wow. And then, you know, I talk to her and she's like, I do an online ministry where I comfort prisoners who are in jail. And you're like... You spend a lot of time online talking to men who are in prison and you run 10 miles a day. How's your sex life? People will find different ways of relieving that tension because they are so alienated within themselves that they have forgotten or they refuse to come together in intimacy. And I'm not at all trying to say sex is the answer to every problem in your marriage. Not at all. But it is the answer to some of them. It really is. I told my wife I was going to tell this story, so I have her permission. You guys are always telling me I need to be more personal. Well, put your seatbelts on. Every once in a while in my marriage, tension builds, and I'll come home with something like, I'm really upset with you, Jess. You know, I've noticed that when you put the dogs out, they bark, and I don't like that because it affects the neighbors, and you need to make them stop or bring them in, and there was trash from your car in the driveway, and the mailbox has three days' worth of mail in it, and it's your job to bring the mail in. And she will look at me, and she will say, I know what the problem is. And I will look around, and all of a sudden, there'll be candles lit and soft music on. And I'll be like, no, it is not that. I am upset by these other things. They are two different things. They are entirely separate. And then she'll kiss me, and I'll be like, what was I mad about? (laughs) And later, you know, we go into sleep, and I'll be like, there was something so important. And she'll be like, no, we're good. And I'm like, no. Maybe about the mailbox. And then she'll like Jedi mind trick, you are very tired. (laughs) And I'll be like, I'm going to go to sleep now, nighty night. And you might be saying like, Ryan, that's not right. That's manipulative. And no, it's great. (laughs) It's the way that God made us. And it's who, how we should function. Look, if it was a problem, if whatever it is, is a real problem, it's not going to go away that easily. But there are some times where some problems seem like they're one thing and they're another thing. And, you know, we call it, and we jokingly call it in our 21 years of marriage, we say sometimes we've got to hit the reset button. And it's amazing, you know, what gets cleared off the deck of problems when it's like actually we just haven't been intimate in a couple of weeks. 
And then I meet people that haven't been intimate in their marriage for six months to a year. And I just think, oh my gosh, like the problem is not that you're not having sex, but the fact that you're not having sex is actually a significant warning that there is a real problem. And so I think it makes all the sense in the world that as the author of Hebrews is going through these things, he says, remember your spouse, remember to love them, and remember to keep the marriage bed pure. Imagine on this issue alone if Christians were known for having amazing marriages. What a witness we would have. If we could be like, you know what, 90% of Christians who get married don't get divorced. And statistics show that they are 90% more satisfied in their sex lives than non-Christians. That right there (laughs) might evangelize half this country. (laughs) If it were true. And there's no reason it shouldn't be true. We have this love of God. We have the Word of God. We have community. And we have the proper understanding of sexuality and the human heart. We have all the tools that are necessary to make marriage work, but we have to prioritize it. It's that important. So we look outside the church, we look inside the church, and then we look inside the home. And we recognize that as we suffer, we have to come together and we mustn't forgive, we mustn't forget to love, especially when things are tough. If we lose our love, we lose our ability to be used by God. That is why we're here. It is the power that we have. It is what we're for. And we cannot give away something that we don't have. When we lose our love, we become inward, we become broken, we become weird, and we become fake. And so as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 22 to 23, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your soul for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of the seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. God, I really am grateful for these guys and I'm really grateful for the people that you put into my life who have loved me and served me even though it was hard, uh, who have demonstrated serving others in an outward focus even though they were suffering. And um, I thank you that you give us the tools to have real relationships, whether that's those outside the church, inside the church, whether it's our spouses, that you set us up with everything we need to have great relationships and that the most important of all those relationships is our relationship with you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.